Uh, our next uh, speaker is uh, Professor David Hyman. And again, but I want to remind you that uh, you do have the full bios in your uh, packets, and I'm not going, going to waste uh, the valuable speaker's time by, by reading the entire thing. Professor David Hyman is an adjunct uh, scholar at the Cato uh, Institute and professor of law and medicine at the University of uh, Illinois. Uh, He also worked uh, for the Federal Trade Commission at at one point and uh, has written a number of very interesting uh, articles, including the Massachusetts Health Plan, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, HIPAA, and Healthcare Fraud, an Empirical Perspective, and a book which I'm sure all of you will like called Medicare Meets Mephistopheles. By the way, we do have some copies of his books on the table outside, and he will be available to sign copies of the book before lunch. So without further ado, Professor David Hyman. Thank you. Uh, So we're going to move from uh, Snow White and Dopey to the Devil. Um, And this is actually a book, as you've already heard, that I did, uh, started as an article, became a book, uh, published by the Cato Institute, Uh, The basic thesis of which, satirically, mind you, uh, is that the best way to understand Medicare is as a demonic plot uh, incorporating all seven of the deadly sins, and I'll have more to say about that in a few moments. Uh, But uh, after working on Medicare uh, for a while, I found the area so divisive, controversial, and uh, people involved with it were so passionate, I decided to find something that was much more dull, Uh, so I spent the next two years working on malpractice policy which will give you a sense of the stakes of uh, talking about Medicare in uh, Washington. Now, uh, we can uh, agree or disagree the extent to which uh, Medicare has been a success or not. In this room, I think there's likely to be considerable unanimity of opinion uh, that it's not been particularly successful and has had all sorts of uh, adverse problems in the healthcare marketplace because of the distorted incentives that it created. Uh, But it is important to recognize uh, that that view is not widely shared in this country. Medicare is perceived as the crown jewel of the great society, Lyndon Johnson signing it uh, with Harry Truman to his left. He went to Independence, Missouri to sign it, uh, and then uh, there are various uh, dignitaries surrounding them. If you actually go to the website of the LBJ library, there's a wider screen version of this photo, and standing off uh, to the far left uh, is Wilbur Mills, the architect who some of you may recall ended his political career by uh, consorting with Fanny Fox, a stripper in the tidal basin. So it's always interesting to see how uh, uh, policy can end up being affected by things that no one could have anticipated at the time. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, I think um, the, the way in which Medicare policy would have played out might have looked differently if Wilmer Mills had uh, continued to hold his position. But it's also important to recognize the sort of deeply moralistic tone that prevailed in uh, the enactment of Medicare, the high hopes of its uh, uh, backers and its sponsors and what they were trying to accomplish. And so this is a, a brief excerpt from the signing statement Uh, that Lyndon Johnson gave in Independence, Missouri, uh, deeply moral undertones. Uh, No longer will older Americans be denied the healing miracle of modern medicine. No longer will illness crush and destroy the savings they have so carefully put away. No longer will young families see their own incomes and their own hopes eaten away. No longer will this nation refuse the hand of justice to those who have given a lifetime of service and wisdom and labor. 
uh, to the progress of this progressive country. Now, that was the promise. What's the reality turned out to be over the last 40-some years? Um, well, the first reality, and this is from some testimony that I gave uh, at the uh, FTC DOJ hearings on health care and competition, uh, Medicare has become a dominant reality of the healthcare marketplace. It's a dominant purchaser of healthcare. It's a monopoly purchaser of healthcare for certain parts uh, of the economy. Uh, and even when it doesn't have a huge uh, market share in uh, absolute terms, it has a big share in relative terms compared to its next biggest alternative, which is also typically Medicaid, two government programs run. Uh, with not certainly identical rules, but similar incentive and informational problems prevailing among those who run it. It influences the nature of competition. It influences where competition can exist and how it exists, the rules under which it exists, the risks and rewards, and the institutional framework. So, you know, you're, I see you're hearing later about uh, f physician-owned single-specialty hospitals. The, the principal impetus for that has to do with uh, some of the ways in which Medicare has structured both its payment rules and its rules relating to the incentive arrangements which physicians can enter into with hospitals that they own or don't own. And so Medicare ends up mattering a lot even when uh, it's not a Medicare patient that you're dealing with. Uh, the second reality, and I'll spend a little time on the fiscal realities because I think they're important uh, to everyone as citizens and not just as uh, uh, providers who have an interest in Medicare. Uh, the Medicare Modernization Act, which is the Part D drug benefit, uh, and this is uh, Comptroller General David Walker, the chief accountant of the United States. This is about as dull a person as you can find. Um, and he's saying really tremendously inflammatory things about the Medicare program. He went on 60 Minutes and gave this interview where he said it's the most fiscally irresponsible piece of legislation since the 1960s. Footnote, that's when we passed Medicare. Um, because we promise way more than we can keep. And, you know, we suffer from a fiscal cancer. Now, I wouldn't use terminology like that, but the nation's chief accountant did. Uh, and if we do not treat it, it could have catastrophic consequences for the country. Uh, and if you prefer cartoons to boring accountants, uh, this is a cartoon from the Washington Post that shows Medicare in bankruptcy court. The judge says, do you have anything to say? And the response is, prescription drugs all around on me. So we've got a program that's underwater to begin with uh, that doesn't, and the, it says over in the corner, order in the court and offering Viagra, Prozac, and Propecia. Um, you know, basically you've got a program that's unsustainable in its original form, and the response, the reform, is to make things worse by larding on an additional benefit uh, when you can't afford the original program. Uh, a sort of uh, additional version of the reality, this is Peter Fisher, who was a very senior person at the Undersecretary of the Treasury uh, in both Republican and Democratic administrations describing the financing of the Medicare program. Think of the federal government as a gigantic insurance company with a sideline business in national defense and homeland security. That's kind of a chilling portrait of what our federal government ends up actually being in the business of, if you look at the fiscal picture, uh, which only does its accounting on a cash basis. And um, most of y'all are cash basis taxpayers, uh, but that's because you don't pile up 
obligations that come due many, many years in the future. If that's the sort of thing you are, you should be an accrual basis taxpayer, and the federal government is, should be an accrual basis taxpayer, but it keeps its books on a cash basis, which means that it's not an insurance company, it's an accident waiting to happen. And we actually have a pretty good idea of when that's going to happen, depending on your assumptions. I'll show you some of that in a moment or two. Um, and then, you know, as sort of centrist, new democratic, uh, a publication is The New Republic, has this sort of very revealing article by Jonathan Cohn, their healthcare expert, uh, back in 2002. If there's a big problem with Medicare these days, it's the program's lack of long-term financial viability, but a sort of remarkable degree of complacency in writing that sentence. So just ask yourself, if you just make a minor substitution, if there's a big problem with Enron these days, it's that company's lack of long-term financial viability. I don't think anybody would view that as uh, coming off quite the same way or thinking that we shouldn't be very concerned about the fiscal implications of the program. Uh, now focusing a little bit more on things that uh, are much more likely to affect individuals in this room as providers of health care services, uh, another reality of the Medicare program is it's resulted uh, in a whole array of laws, very complicated laws, sometimes cast in broad and overexpansive terms, enforced by prosecutors who don't necessarily have a lot of expertise in health care. Uh, and who's, depending upon which part of the system you're looking at, whose incentives are to bring more cases to obtain more funds under the False Claims Act, uh, you end up with overcriminalization. That is to say, the Medicare program underinvests in administration. I know that's hard to believe in this room, but it really does. Uh, at the front end, and so it compensates at the back end by smacking people with a really big hammer when it decides, sometimes correctly, often incorrectly, uh, that they're doing something wrong. That's coupled, that overcriminalization, which has already been mentioned here today, is coupled with uh, what I describe in another article as speakeasy social norms. So those of you who uh, recall your prohibition history, it was, uh, it wasn't it was unlawful to drink, but the only people who got prosecuted were uh, loud bums on the street corner rather than the uh, fancy people who sip sherry in speakeasies. Um, and there are speakeasy social norms. That is to say, people sort of wink and overlook uh, what the law says because there isn't much enforcement in some areas. Uh, among providers and their lawyers and their program administrators at least some of the time. But the problem is those are just norms, those aren't laws, and to the extent the fraud controller types come along and have a different take on strict compliance with the law, you can have really significant problems. And again, you've heard this morning about some of those cases where that's happened uh, to individuals who you've contacted and filed amicus briefs on. The other thing uh, to recognize is the complete disjunction between the popular perceptions of the program and its fiscal realities and what we actually know. So uh, a recent survey found that 72% of the American public believes that Medicare would have no financial problems whatsoever if all the fraud and abuse was eliminated. There's absolutely no evidence to support that. All the available evidence, in fact, suggests the opposite. There is fraud in the program. There is abuse in the program. It's a big program. There are lots of people providing services. There's also sloppy documentation, which is not the same thing as fraud. Uh, 
But even if you wiped all that out, you wouldn't end up fixing the fiscal sorts of problems with the program that I've already described. Now, I said we know pretty well when the program runs out of money. Uh, if you just look at Part A, uh, this is a plot years on the vertical axis, the year of the trustees report on the horizontal axis. Here's how many years it is until the Part A program basically runs out of money in the trust fund. Uh, and has to uh, go directly to tax revenues. And what you see, I know it's a little bit hard to see, but at no time since the program's creation has its financial prospects been on uh, what we would expect of a private sector insurance fund. Okay? You make promises about lifetime coverage, but at no time is it more than tw 30 years. It's usually more around 12 to 15. Okay? Now that's obviously how long it is is sensitive to the assumptions you use, uh, but as I wrote in the book, if a private sector individual tried to sell you a contract, an insurance contract, offering you Medicare coverage with the sorts of promises uh, that are made to uh, uh, senior citizens as well as all taxpayers, they'd be serving a long prison term for securities fraud because you're basically fibbing, all right, lying to people about what it is you're promising them and what you're likely to be able to deliver. Um, I'll skip that one and focus now on the book in the time that I've got remaining. This is the cover of the book. Some of you uh, can probably see it uh, or have seen it out front already. Uh, basically, it's a devil sitting at his uh, computer typing uh, a memo. Uh, and the memo, the book as a whole, takes the form of a memo from a junior underling demon in the Department of Illness and Satanic Services, or DIS. <laughs> Uh, to the devil reporting on how their plan to uh, undermine the American Republic with a program that corrupts everyone it touches and incorporates all seven of the deadly sins is going. Those of you who've read the screw tape letters will obviously recognize uh, the inspiration for the book. Um, and it's uh, actually somewhat to my surprise attracted praise from across the political spectrum including from uh, supporters of the Medicare program, Ted Marmer, uh, at Yale is one of the biggest supporters of the program, and he wrote me a very nice blurb for the back of the book. Uh, said he didn't disagree with it, but he thought you could learn a lot from it. Let me show you a couple of other reviews by way of shamelessly encouraging you to buy the book that's sitting outside, and I'll sign it and personalize it just before lunch. Um, so the Heartland Institute, which some of you are probably familiar with, uh, said it's humorous, witty, efficiently written, and above all, enlightening. Um, uh, Dr. Zwelling from the California Medical Association said it's a great read, a great gift, and I recommend that you put it in your waiting room. Uh, the New England Journal of Medicine gave it a very positive review, as did Tom Saving, who is one of the public trustees of the Medicare program. In the interest of equal time, let me show you um, a more mixed review of another article that uh, Greg Scanlon, who's sitting in the back, wrote of my uh, Massachusetts health plan paper. <laughs> surprisingly readable for a professor of law. <laughs> That's what we call damning with faint praise in my, in my line of work. But in any event, uh, you know, a fairness doctrine equal time, so at least you know what you're getting in for. All right, so now let me spend a few minutes talking about the basic organization of the book and laying out uh, how each of the sins applies. Um, so obviously these are the seven deadly sins. Uh, Avera and I basically have a separate chapter on each of the sins that talks about who it affects and how it uh, ends up skewing the way in which the program operates. 
Avarice, uh, the <laughs> providers of the program, and there are obviously all sorts of different types of providers, uh, have been disproportionately influenced um, by Avarice. Um, and you end up, and that's just not just garden variety fraud, it's obviously, um, you know, if your patient, if your normal judgment if someone was paying out of pocket was they needed uh, to be seen every year, if someone else is paying suddenly every six months starts to look like a more plausible uh, and reasonable approach, um, when someone else is footing the bill, it has an understandable incentive to skew, a tendency to skew everybody's incentives. Um, and you know, the truth of the matter is the program encourages it by creating an open-ended, uh, leaving aside the sort of fraud enforcement, open-ended willingness to pay for things uh, as long as the paperwork looks reasonable. Uh, gluttony is the beneficiaries um, who are on the sort of receiving end of this and ceaselessly agitate for uh, more extensive coverage of more things, uh, even though they're already in the sort of one of the last bastions of fee-for-service insurance in the United States. It's a sort of great example of diffuse costs and concentrated benefits similar to what you heard from the first speaker. Uh, Envy is the sort of most disappointing of the sins. The Medicare program uh, was certainly viewed as a starting point towards uh, um, universal government-run health insurance. Uh, and so the idea was we ought to offer the beneficiaries a better insurance plan than's available in the private market. Well, that's not hard to do when you don't have to internalize the costs and can spread them across the entire population. Uh, but it turned out people like their private insurance, and Medicare for all uh, hasn't had much traction in the political sphere. Uh, so envy of those without for those within hasn't worked out very well. Uh, sloth uh, is legislators and program administrators. This may surprise you. Your perception is likely to be that they're aggressive, hard-driving in addressing uh, the sort of problems with the program or at least picking on the doctors that uh, run afoul of them. The truth of the matter is the legislative approach to Medicare is to kick the can down the road past the next election, irrespective of how serious the long-term prospects are for the program. Uh, and a sort of rat, each, uh, again, following on the observations of the first speaker, each failure in the program is viewed as a justification for further uh, expansion and modification to the program rather than ratcheting it back. So it's a one-way ratchet in favor of more uh, enforcement. Uh, program administrators uh, are also uh, prone to this sloth problem. Uh, those of you who know, probably no one except for me, know the history of HICFA. It came out of the people who used to run the Social Security Administration. Okay, Writing checks to people who are on Social Security is a very different sort of operation than trying to administer a health plan. One requires finding their addresses and their names, calculating the numbers, signing the checks, and mailing to them. The other requires you to actually run an insurance company in the way that uh, private insurers try and do. Uh, very different operation, uh, and they're you know very conscientious, hardworking people, uh, but they're not going to be running a private insurance company anytime soon. Um, lust. Um, 
you, you can't ignore the political dynamics of the Medicare program. This is a program that was backed by the Democrats. They viewed it as the, the keystone of the great society, the way to long-term political dominance. They view it as both the program that will get them there and also their signature issue. So they want to do it because they think it helps them politically. They also want to do it because they think on sort of moral grounds it's the right thing to do. No one should be denied the hand of justice uh, in President Johnson's words. Um, and so, that you know, day in and day out, they're constantly agitating to expand the program. Anger, other side of the political divide. The Republicans are incredibly frustrated by this program because they can't figure out how to change its trajectory. Everything they do about it is prone to demonization uh, by the other side. Uh, but it's inconsistent with uh, their core political beliefs to the extent, um, well, I don't need to finish that sentence. Uh, <laughs> um, and the interesting thing about the Part D Medicare benefit is it basically flipped the sins. The Republicans uh, became lustful for political advantage and expanded Medicare much against their core principles, uh, and it just drove the Democrats nuts. Okay, there are these wonderful quotes with people literally foaming at the mouth about how can the Republicans steal our issues. Uh, so that's the seven deadly sins. Oh, I'm sorry, vanity. Vanity is people like me, health policy analysts, uh, who tend to spend their time uh, thinking about how good government ought to work but are willing to excuse a program that simply doesn't work very well uh, at its at even mod its modest goals, let alone the goals that were set out for it uh, at its enactment. So uh, a couple more slides I just want to show you. I used to work at the Federal Trade Commission, which deals with consumer fraud, among other things. Uh, and so it just occurred to me, if you step back and look at the Medicare program and describe its attributes, uh, it's, and those attributes are short-term viability is dependent on a continuous addition of new participants and funds, simply unsustainable long-term promises, early investors are paid off with subsequent investor contributions, that's a giveaway, uh, and lots of arguments from security, fidelity, and solidarity to maintain continued inflows. So what else do these attributes to describe? Well, it's a pyramid scheme, right? But this one's run on an intergenerational basis with the coercive taxing power of the government to keep it going. All right. Uh, so where should Medicare go from here? I always like to end on a positive note, um, even on subjects such as this. Uh, so uh, a couple of uh, suggestions, at least the last of which uh, is probably not likely to be very popular. The first rule of holes is when you find yourself in one, you should stop digging. And so part D, uh, is sort of exemplifies that. Uh, we're we're going to see, I think, significant changes in Part D as the bill comes due. Uh, second is don't make promises you can't keep. I think we're likely to see movements uh, towards targeted subsidies, uh, increasing the age at which you can participate, uh, and increasing uh, the co-payments by beneficiaries. That's not going to make a real profound difference in the direction of the program, but it's increasingly difficult to tax people without health insurance to provide drug coverage to people who already have health insurance. Politically, that's going to become harder and harder. Uh, the third thing is I think the program can do a lot to empower patients, certainly with information. Uh, if you're willing to see vouchers uh, with dollars as well, I'm not holding my breath on that one, but it would obviously dramatically change the dynamics of the program. 
I think the program uh, and the U.S. attorneys made a big mistake uh, by trying to use the criminal law to enforce uh, and delimit professional judgment. Uh, that hasn't worked out very well for them. I think they should stop trying to do it. Uh, and I think if they do want to uh, improve quality uh, and possibly lower cost uh, using their purchasing power, uh, any purchaser gets to decide how it wishes to spend its money. The Medicare program shouldn't be an exception, notwithstanding uh, the sort of coercive nature of involvement in the program. The difficulty here is, uh, as Dick Army uh, once observed, demagoguery beats data in making public policy, and that's going to be a problem. So let me just close uh, with the following thought. This is a cartoon, one of my favorite cartoons, uh, from the time when Medicare was enacted. And although in, at the, right now everybody thinks Medicare is immense, it says, doctor, you must stop addressing your Medicare patients as comrade. Okay. Right about now, people don't think about Medicare that way. But people thought that way about Medicare for a long time. And Medicare was stopped in its tracks on multiple occasions. It was only the overwhelming dominance of the Democrats as a result of the election uh, in 62 that resulted in and the assassination of President Kennedy that resulted in the political coalition that made Medicare and Medicaid possible. Uh, and ever since, there hasn't been much success in expanding the program. The fight over S-CHIP, I think, illustrates that as well. So past is not necessarily future, uh, and it's uh, the job of people like those in the room to make their views heard on whether they think the past ought to be the future. Thank you very much.